You're listening to The Mumbrella Cast. The Mumbrella Cast. Welcome to The Mumbrella Cast. I'm Damien Francis and joining me to break down the week in media and marketing is Olivia Crimmel. Hello, Damien. Xander Wilson. Hey, Damo. And Callum Jaspin. Hi, Damo. Later in the Mumbrella cast, Olivia will be talking to Foxtel Group General Manager of Lifestyle, Wendy Moore, about the strength of lifestyle as a brand. I think lifestyle as a brand was in a really good position because we've always been about optimism TV. We've always been heartwarming stories and, um, you know, our internal mantra is find your happy place. COVID-19 driving audiences to the small screen. What I think was really amazing about COVID is that it was a collective shoes to sofa moment that we've never had before. Everybody did it. And how expectations around advertising timeframes have changed. We have all been running on a shorter and shorter kind of time frame with advertising and that does limit the opportunities of getting that real editorial integration. But first, the week's topics. Nine Stan Sport targets football fans with the UEFA Champions League. How brands can further their support for the LGBTQI plus community beyond Pride Month and... How ASX listed advertising media and research companies are faring in a new financial year. This week, Nine revealed Stan Sport will begin broadcasting football with the streaming service adding the UEFA Champions League and other UEFA club competitions to its slate. It marks the continued expansion of Stan Sport, which now has rugby, tennis and football, and also sees the football broadcast landscape fragment even further in Australia than it already has been. Xander, what can you tell us about the latest deal for Stan Sport? Yeah, so as you mentioned there, Stan Sport will, from next season, uh, broadcast football's premier club competition, at least that's how they brand it, the UEFA Champions League, as well as some other UEFA club competitions, uh, including the Europa League and and the newly formed Europa Conference League, which kicks off for the first time. Uh, these leagues feature some of the biggest clubs in world football um, from England, Spain, France, Italy, Germany, and more. Uh, so it's a fairly significant deal for, for Nine and Stan Sport because really up until now, there was really only speculation about what they might go into next after launching with Super Rugby. Obviously, we've seen them broadcast tennis, so the French Open, Roland Garros, they, they've completed that and, and, and Wimbledon as well. Um, but, but this is a real sign of intent from them in terms of the expansion and, and overall content strategy of, of Stan Sport. I'm a little surprised on this one that Optusport didn't or, or wasn't able to retain the rights. We're not exactly sure about what the story is there. Uh, they've been broadcasting the English Premier League in Australia for a few years now, as well as the Champions League. And they, they are two competitions that dovetail quite nicely with, with a variety of different clubs uh, featuring in both of those. So so now if, if you're an Australian fan and you want to watch both, you'll have to sign up to Stan mm-hmm. Sport, which is an extra 10 bucks on top of a basic $10 subscription. Subscription, so so twenty dollars, um, and and of course these changes all come in the context of quite a lot of different changes around football rights in Australia. The A League recently going to ten slash Paramount. Uh, so moving forward, football fans might have to be a bit more choosy in in what competitions they pay to watch moving forward. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's got implications both for the fans and for streaming services as well. You touched on it a bit for the fans. There's a lot of streaming services I'll have to sign up for depending on, uh, I guess, what competitions they want to watch. But what implications does this have for streaming services and the streaming landscape as well, Xander? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really a, a sign of the times. We've seen the sports streaming landscape quite fragmented in in other countries like the US and the UK. Uh, if you go back 10 years ago and then 15 years ago as well in Australia, if you're a sports fan, you you had Fox Sports, you had everything, well, pretty much everything. And, and if you couldn't watch anything live due to anti-siphoning laws, it was there to be watched on delay. So um, it's pretty clear over the last few years that Fox has cut its losses in the leagues that it no longer believes in, being Super Rugby and, and the A-League. Uh, it was a big deal when Opus Sport got the rights to the English Premier League and then the Champions League. Uh, there are two competitions with clubs with big fan bases in Australia, and that they always have been. So I, th- I think that was a big loss for Fox. Optus Sport then came in a few years ago and showed you can really be successful with with quality broadcasts, with good talent of just a few sports. And now we're seeing other other platforms like Amazon Prime Video, Viacom CBS, as we mentioned, and Sansport really showing that that model can work. I spoke with uh, the managing director of Magna yesterday, Nick Nick Durrant, who's who's a sports tragic and, and also obviously a media buyer and planner uh, just about the state of play here. He spoke about the difference between football and a lot of other sport fan bases in Australia. Uh, For instance, he suggested that if you're a rugby union or a rugby league fan and live in Australia, you probably only follow the Super Rugby or the NRL. You know, you're unlikely to follow rugby league in France and England and other places as well. Whereas football fans in Australia are a lot more globally aware. So you might have your typical A-League fan who follows Sydney FC or Melbourne Victory. You might have a Premier League fan who follows Manchester United or or Liverpool. And, And some might cross over, but Nick did say that fan bases are pretty loyal to certain teams and leagues. And and he thinks that the result of what's happening here is that fans will continue to find the games they're interested in and subscribe to the streaming service that offers that, which means there, there's a lot of the pie to go around for football in Australia for these streaming services. So does he genuinely think that, that people will uh, subscribe to multiple streaming services? I, I know in, in interviews before that you've done with, with Amazon Prime, they've suggested that that's what's going to, to happen. It's, it sounds like maybe the market is uh, leaning towards that way, that it's a fairly safe bet that, that people will invest in multiple streaming options. Yeah, well, it, as, he, as he mentioned, it sort of it depends on what sort of fan you are. So uh, he, he sort of implied, and, and this is something that we've spoken about before, that, that you know, if, if you're a really big A-League fan, you, you'll probably sign up to Paramount+. Plus. You might not also be a fan of the English Premier League as well. Um, so it, it really just depends on what value you're trying to get for your money there as well. I, obviously, what comes into it too are the different price points here, um, Stan Sport being $20.00. Uh, Paramount Plus is only going to be eight dollars and ninety nine cents, which is which is quite 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 a different price point there. But the other thing that Nick said when I was speaking to him is that is that platforms now what they're doing is looking for content that drives audiences and subscriptions. Services are taking sort of taking turns to hold the rights to different movies and television shows. Like you sort of see things like The Office hop around from Amazon Prime to Netflix to to stand to wherever else. Uh, but as Nick said. Sports audiences are still a big audience driver, at least from the perspective of media buyers. He mentioned again, we've spoken about England, but the Premier League is one of the main drivers of subscriptions for Sky TV, and and the Premier League, you know, is also split across different comp- different offerings in England on different uh, streaming services. 
and and in Australia, Nick says sport is still a well trodden path, and obviously the obviously CBS and Stan have made the calculations that it will drive revenue. Sport still has a large and loyal following, and that's why the networks keep paying big bucks for rights. So so I think they they do believe that sport will be a way to to really bring audiences to these new platforms, whether they be Stan or, or, or Paramount Plus. Coming up next, as Pride Month ends, are brands really supporting causes genuinely? As this year's Pride Month comes to an end, Callum looked into some of the mistakes brands are still making in regards to what can be termed rainbow washing and what brands can do to more genuinely promote diversity. The feature which drops tomorrow on Mumbrella came after my chat with Koala Chief Marketing and Technology Officer Peter Slotterdyke, who supported brands aiding a cause, but only if it was genuine. He said, When a brand is trying to connect with a belief system and a purpose, you've got to make sure that it is authentically connected to the representation of your workforce and who is involved and how you are creating that particular connection. Otherwise, not only will it fail, it will likely create a crisis for your brand. Now, Callum, you spoke to some other senior leaders in the industry. What did you chat to them about and what were their thoughts? So for this article demo, I spoke to Richard Brett, who's the CEO of Ogilvy Network here in Australia. And I also spoke to Kate Rook, who uh, is the head of Creative Insights Asia-Pacific at um, Getty Images and iStock. And they just launched a guidebook in partnership with um, GLAD, which is an LGBTQI plus media advocacy organization to address the findings of a visual GPS survey that they um, they just undertook. I'd say the two, uh, the two main takeaways are that brands are either being inconsistent or inauthentic. And both of these things are easy to spot. Brett said that any partnership with the LGBTQI community needs to be centered around actually doing something because um, what, what you see often is that or what the community sees is companies and brands just wanting the association using Pride Month or Mardi Gras as a marketing ploy without actually doing anything meaningful to support the community. Um, and that also includes challenging the problem or dealing with prejudices. This can be seen really easily by brands not really understanding the different complexities uh, that are dealt with by the different sub-communities within the wider LGBTQI plus community. I guess we've seen so many brands over the past years get really involved in supporting that community, but we've probably put a different lens on it now to really dive deeper into just how thorough that, that support actually is. There was a bit of thought in market recently that perhaps there haven't been as many campaigns outwardly supporting the LGBTQI plus community, particularly during Pride Month, whether that was because everyone's been busy with, uh, you know, um, trying to get around what coronavirus means to them and, and how to, to keep their businesses steady I don't actually know. Um, we did see a lot of uh, logos changing to incorporate uh, the, the the rainbow logo as well. But was there any commentary, Cal, around um, whether there were more or less brands, you know, getting involved uh, recently or not? So it's interesting because when it comes to campaigns, the the survey that I referenced before by Getty Images. Um, did find that Australians and New Zealanders do want to see more diverse and inclusive stories being told and represented. 
Um, and at the same time, brands also want to do this. But what's really interesting is that um, Kate said that brands genuinely have a fear of just getting it wrong. So as we've seen this year, it's not that they don't want to be telling these stories and championing the LGBTQI plus community. It's just that they're worried that their efforts may come across wrong or be seen as um, inauthentic. Uh, so they decide it's maybe better off to not do anything than do it wrong. And there's only really one solution to this. Um, and that's to be engaging your brand with the community and making genuine efforts year round, because if you don't, you'll get found out. Um, and as Kate said, when I chatted to her, young people are pretty savvy to brands messaging and mis- mission statements now. And with the technology available in our hands, it, it only really takes two minutes to look something up. This isn't something that you can just join, jump on when Pride Month rolls around each year. It takes time. Um, and when that time in that time put in is genuine engagement, it is recognized by the community. Richard said um, he pointed to a couple of brands, ones that have seen long-term engagement and been long-term supporters and advocates for the community. And those were, you know, brands like Absolute, Netflix and Qantas. And by putting that effort in, they in turn have the community's support. With Gen Z in particular at the moment, really wanting to see brands get behind causes, but genuinely get behind causes and also equally willing to call them out if they're not genuinely getting behind causes. You can understand reticence from some brands to do it, particularly if they're not really committed to it. I mean, what uh, Peter Slaughterdike said to me is brands really should be getting behind causes, but they need to do it genuinely. They need to get people behind them who are attached to the causes as well, who genuinely understand them and then can understand how the brand is associated with those causes in far more detail. But um, what other tips, Cal, did you get from from speaking to to Caden Richard um, about this in terms of what marketers should be looking at as a whole to ensure that they're they're not um, making any faux pas? I guess what it comes down to is just ensuring first and foremost that you're doing the work internally to further diversity. Um, and, you know, as as Peter said, what's your brand doing for the 11 other months of the year? You need to be putting in the effort year round uh, before going external with your kind of brand messaging. And as Brett said to me, don't be transactional with it. Connect with the community, understand the challenges and do something to support the community. You, you have to be genuine because long before you decide to go public with it that's when that's when the hard work is put in um and that's when when you do do that you can't uh, you know you're not just drawing attention and saying look at us we're allies of the community because you know that's pretty easy to spot if you're following through with your commitments to diversity and inclusion then you know you're, you're putting yourself on the right path and on the other hand you, you have to make sure that you're actually furthering diversity and representation within your own organization one last thing that um, the Getty Images survey found was that in these campaigns um, or, you know, brands brands allying themselves, uh, imagery and representation is really important. And the, the report also found that not often, not, not very often members of the LGBTQI community are shown in these kind of brands and messaging. And when they are, it's a pretty narrow, stereotypical or tokenistic way. So I think just extending that beyond these kind of stereotypes would also be a good start. So don't forget to keep an eye out uh, tomorrow on Mumbrella, uh, July 2, for that feature. But next, the state of play with media and marketing's ASX-listed companies. 
Today marks the start of a new financial year. Happy new financial year. And the end of the first full financial year as the ASX listed companies have had dealing with COVID-19, closed borders, lockdowns, and all of the rest. So what better time to revisit how the diminishing number of listed companies in the media and marketing industry have performed? Liv, how did they go? You did a a little bit of a whip around to uh, see what the lay of the land was. Yes, the team did do a review of the ASX-listed companies and, wow, what a difference 12 months makes. Although, ironically, as you just mentioned, FY22 is starting in much the same way FY21 did with lockdowns, border closures and lots of uncertainty. For the most part, at least, uh, at least until late last week, the ASX um, and the companies that we cover on the ASX seem to have co- recovered significantly by the end of FY21 and in some cases had bounced back stronger than their pre-COVID performance. Uh, some main ones to highlight would be, of course, Nine Entertainment Co. and News Corp, which had its best quarter ever during the financial year and is said to have its most profitable year since its reincarnation in 2013. At the end of 2029, reported a $182 million net profit for the first half of the financial year, representing a 79% increase on the previous corresponding period and $1.2 billion in revenue. So that is quite a, a turnaround. Its, uh, its major competitor, Seven West Media, ended 2020 uh, with a first half year net profit of $116.4 million. However, its revenue was down 9.9% to $644.2 million. Um, Southern Cross Stereo has also made a dramatic recovery since its share price fell in March 2020. Uh, for H1 of FY21, SEA saw its revenue fall by 15.9%. Yet, thanks to a significant reduction in its debt pile, uh, it has managed to turn a profit for H1. Seven West Media has also significantly cut its debt over the past 12 months, which is uh, worth noting. ARN's parent company, Here, There and Everywhere, ended 2021 financial year in a significantly recovered position also. And lastly, Enro Group, the only listed ad agency group on the ASX now that WPP has delisted, started off the year reporting net revenue up 19% to $81 million. However, it's worth noting that Australia's revenue contribution to that was down five percentage points on the previous corresponding period. So all things considered... Not the worst report card for the Australian media and marketing industry by any stretch. And it, it, in a way, mirrors what a lot of the market has been saying is that the calendar year for last year anyway, uh, take out April, May, was actually quite a strong year. Obviously, that depends on the clients you're working with and the industry sector that that you're specifically in. But you spoke with an investment analyst about the ongoing pandemic recovery Uh, What insights did they share with you? Yes, I had a chat with Patrick Potts from Martin Curie, who's a large institutional investor in Nine, for instance, who said that the lockdowns in recent days have the potential to take some of that momentum out of the market that we have seen in recent months. As everyone will have known by now, the ASX, for instance, over the past 12 months has had a bumper performance. It's up significantly across the board. Um, He added that for media companies, the priority at the moment is short-term recovery in ad dollars, which he said 
TV had already done quite well, whereas radio and outdoor are still lagging behind. And we've seen that in the results from those relevant companies such as SEA, O Media, and ARN's parent company. Um, looking forward, though, uh, Patrick said that he expected more positive commentary coming out of the media companies in Australia in their August results season. Coming up next, Olivia speaks with Foxtel's Wendy Moore. Joining us on the Mumbrella cast today is former magazine editor, magazine commercial manager, now Foxtel Group General Manager Lifestyle and TV host, Wendy Moore. Wendy, welcome to the Mumbrella cast. Thank you. Wendy, I'd first like to acknowledge that your resume is quite astounding in that there are a number of rather diverse roles that you've had that I just rattled off. Can you tell me briefly about your current role and the brands that you oversee as part of it? Yeah, so my current role is the group GM of the Lifestyle Channel. So um, I have actually four channels in my group, Lifestyle, Lifestyle Home, Lifestyle Food and Fox Arena. Um, So predominantly female-oriented channels. And it's basically all the programming, the acquisition of titles and um, the commissioning of local programs as well for all of those. I've seen working with the marketing team, you know, it's kind of an across-the-board title. And I mentioned there that you were at Pacific Magazines, which is now part of our media for quite a while, and you manage titles such as Home Beautiful and Better Homes and Gardens. Mm-hmm. Transitioning from that editorial role to a commercial role and then transitioning again from a predominantly print and digital entity to a broadcast and digital mm-hmm. entity Can you tell me some of the challenges or learnings that you went through to adapt to those different roles during those changes? Um, I guess I kind of had, um, I had some insight into broadcast because while I was at Pacific, I I got a role on House Rules with Channel 7 and I worked really closely with the production team there so you get a bit more of an idea about how they think and, and what they're all, all the different layers of everything they're considering at, at the time. Um, and also I think you just realise that we're all pretty similar. Everyone in media is quite similar. All of our background, backgrounds share very similar experiences and I think the, um, the thinking and the creative outlook is very similar. So particularly in print media, there's always this kind of level of intimidation with TV because it's kind of always seems to be more glamorous than magazines. And um, But actually when you meet the people that you're working with, um, you realise just how like-minded they are. And uh, just transitioning from, i.e., the editorial role and then the commercial role and then on-camera role, like what, what for you was, I guess, some of the uh, main differences or things that you learnt to help you to facilitate that change? I think with, with the, the commercial understanding, I think, most modern editors need to have a commercial understanding of the business. You are really managing the whole business and you do, um, you do need to understand how you're making your revenue and, and how you're managing your costs and you do need to have really close relationships with clients and advertisers and understand what they're trying to achieve and make sure that what you're doing with them works for an audience, otherwise it doesn't work for anyone. So I think that really for most people working in media now, that kind of comes hand in hand. And 
um, years and years ago when I first worked in um, publishing, I was a beauty editor and that is a really heavily commercial area in magazines. It's very driven by advertising and so I think that insight even in those early years as to um, working with advertisers in a way that makes sense for everybody was ingrained in me there and my editor at the time was Nene King and she was a very commercially minded editor. I kind of grew, grew up in the media with the idea that that's, that commercial understanding was necessary. Um, but the TV thing was a little bit different because um, Home Beautiful had been doing well for a long time and we'd kind of taken taken the top spot a few times and it was really it was really exciting. But every time we kind of got on top, our main competitor, which at the time was um, House and Garden, would spend a whole heap of money on marketing and, and then they'd kind of edge ahead of us again and then we'd catch up and start beating them again. And... Um, I just didn't have the marketing funds and couldn't justify a big marketing spend to keep us up there. And um, so when I was talking to, um, it was actually Nick Chan, and he said that the, the team that did My Kitchen Rules wanted to do a show around renovating. Um, can I talk to them about renovating and, and help them kind of set it up? Uh, all I thought was, oh, this could be the marketing chance that Home Beautiful needs, so I'm going to do everything and get in there and um, tell them everything I know in the hope that I'll carry some sort of favour and get some promotion from the magazine out of it. And then um, when they asked me to screen test for one of the roles, I again thought, if I'm on it, then I can promote it. This is awesome. And so in my mind, I was really just thinking about using that as a marketing tool that I didn't have access to at that time. And um, so I, I don't think I'd really thought, and it's quite hard if, you, if you're not on screen, it's really hard to to guess or, you know, to foresee what it's going to be for you personally. Mm-hmm. And probably it's, it's a good thing that you don't because it can be a bit overwhelming. But, um, yeah, I hadn't really thought about the impact that would have and positive and negative on, on me personally doing an on-screen role. And, you know, I was I was 40 at the time, so I was probably a little bit more mature than most people that are starting out in TV. So I, I felt like it was a bit of a soft landing for me in a lot of ways that um, I, I had a real purpose for being there that was beyond having a profile and the pressure on that, that exists for so many people doing that. Um, on maintaining a role in TV, it wasn't really there for me. So I kind of felt like I was a bit on the sidelines. And maybe if I knew what a big experience it was going to be, I probably would have been a bit more intimidated to take that step. But luckily I didn't know, so I took the step. <laughs> no, definitely. That's blind faith, I suppose. <laughs> yes, <probably. laughs> Well, speaking of being on camera, you were recently announced as a new host for Foxtel's Selling Houses Australia, so back in front of the camera. Um, how did that come about and are you excited about being back in front of the camera as as per you, you know, your time on House Rules? Um. Yeah, look, I guess um, starting with how it came about, you know, Shana, um, Shana had been talking to um, myself and Brian Walsh, obviously, about um, returning and she made the decision early in the year that she didn't want to return 
And, you know, she's done 13 years. She did such an amazing job. And um, I have, you know, I just think she's fabulous. So my first response was worry because it's such an important show for the for, for our brands and for the, um, the platform that it's, you know, it's a hard role to replace. Um, and so I was busily finding people and feeding them through to Brian for... Um, for casting, and then Brian asked me um, if I would do a screen test, and he said, oh, "We'll just keep you in our back pocket." And so it was probably a bit of a soft sell too then. Um, and so I, I did a screen test with everybody else, and then they didn't make a decision for a while. So I thought, oh, "I hope they're not feeling awkward about telling me that I didn't get it." But um, I think you know, it, it's a big decision for them to make, and. Um, Finally, they offered it to me, and yeah, I'm really excited. I think, you know, for all the shows, Selling Houses is such a lovely show. It's so positive and so optimistic, and you know, there's no drama. It's just all lovely stories, and so it's a bit of a dream show, really, to be cast on. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I must say, obviously, the past 12 months, home renovations, cooking, home crafts, all of those had had, you know, huge audiences, increases, et cetera, because of COVID and lockdowns Mm. and, you know, travel restrictions and whatnot. Um, Have you seen that as well? Have you seen huge increases in terms of audience and interest and commercial interest? Yeah. I mean, um, you know, when COVID first hit, probably the commercial interest was – you know, a bit more nervous because none of us really knew what was going to happen and how it was going to affect the economy. I don't think anyone foresaw that it would have the positive impact on home the way that it has. Um, from an audience point of view, I think it was a good... I think lifestyle as a brand was in a really good position because we've always been about optimism TV. We've always been heartwarming stories and... Um, you know, our internal mantra is find your happy place. That's that's what lifestyle programming is about. So at the beginning of COVID and, you know, for the, the most of the lockdown, that was where people wanted to come to, some feel-good, familiar, you know, known formats where they have a sense of the world is okay um, really resonated. And we, we saw huge audience gro- um, growth year on year, um, particularly for the first kind of four or five months of COVID. Um, and then, you know, as we started to see that the growth in um, the the homemaker market, um, then I think the the clients, our advertisers, have started to see that there's really great opportunity to make an emotional connection with an audience that's all really, really already really engaged. And um, so we've seen quite a lot of growth in that area. We've got a few, quite a few sponsors signed on for um, new Australian shows that aren't going to go to air in the next you know, six months because I think there's a lot of demand for that to, to get that right environment for clients. That's an interesting point you make. We've heard from a couple of different networks and platforms that Australian audiences love Australian content. Does that resonate for you as well? Are you seeing the same at Foxtel? Yeah, I mean, you definitely saw it in COVID. Um, the, the Australian programming that we have um, just even Gogglebox, which is not so much home maker but definitely is about being in the home um the audiences were just huge i mean a lot of lifestyle content worked really well but i mean our australian shows have always been you know 
the key pillars of our audience anyway, but you could just see that that's what the audience was craving more than any anything else. And I know in the past, um, I think you've mentioned that a lot of the content comes from the UK otherwise in terms of international content that you procure. Is, is that still the case? Is that still the main market that Australians, you know, either look to or have interest in or are there any other markets and content yes. from those that you're also seeing interest in? Yeah, I mean, we've kind of, our lifestyle main channel carries a lot of UK content and that still works really well. Um, it's it's the right tone and it's the right feel for um, our audience and, you know, the, the UK production values are always really high. They've got, you know, a great background there. Um, we have seen more and more content that works for our audience coming out of the US as well. So our lifestyle home channel carries predominantly US content. People like the Property Brothers and some of the other location, um, location shows and um, we... We're definitely seeing that that's drawing a younger audience, the US shows, and um, I think, you know, the US, they do have a different vibe to their um, content than the UK, but I think more and more they've got um, a real sense of style that's quite similar. Um, you know, the Californian produced shows, you really get a sense of the, the style is quite similar to Sydney and, and um, Australian style, and the lifestyle is quite similar, so the renovations feel a bit more relevant. And are there any uh, show formats or brands that you think would be well to reproduce here in Australia as a local version or are there any that you're in the pipeline looking at? Um, yeah, one of the shows that we've just commissioned that um, is a UK show that um, I feel is really quite strong for us is um, a show called The Repair Shop. Um, it's been on in the UK for a while and it's just... Um, it's just a really lovely, heartwarming show. The idea is that we've all got these amazing heirlooms and, and pieces that we've inherited from family members that come not just as an object but as, you know, attached with stories and memories and um, and it's not really about the financial value of it. It's more about the, the life value of it. And so the repair shop is somewhere where people can bring these pieces in and then we have a group of really passionate repairers that come in and basically restore it back to its former glory. And you get it's it's a great vehicle for telling great Australian or you know great Australian stories and, and life stories and um and it is at the end of the day it's it's still about humanity and it's it's a really lovely show so that we've just commissioned that. The other show that we've just commissioned is is not actually a format that's overseas, but it's a spin-off from um, selling houses. I think we're going to put a bit more of the US kind of bit faster moving, a bit younger, um, a bit sexier and, and a bit more urban, small spaces and probably more decorating and styling focused as opposed to structurally um, focused. So a little bit more... Um, DIY, I guess, DIY friendly, um, and that I think we're kind of getting a bit of inspiration in how we track that from a few different places, um, and we'll do it here for the first time, but I think it's probably got a good opportunity to sell in a few markets because of that. You mentioned um, selling houses and I think everyone knows that the property market in Australia, pretty much everywhere, has gone gangbusters yeah. the past <laughs> six to 12 months, depending on where you sit. 
Um, how, how do you feel that's impacted the selling houses? Has that been a positive thing in terms of just the overall interest and the, you know, the dollars that are being invested in property at the moment? Well, look, we did some research um, just prior to COVID um, called The Great Australian Lifestyle and we could see then that just the intent to invest both financially and emotionally in our home was increasing. Um, and then uh, one, we literally did it and finished it less than three months before COVID hit. So we kind of then ended up with this great benchmark to exactly what was happening prior to COVID so then we can revisit the research and find out what's really changing. And what I think um, what we saw is a massive increase. I mean, and you can see that in the data. I think we had something like a 12% growth in overall household spending, but in um, spending on household goods there was 29%, which actually even outstripped alcohol, which I think is pretty serious. Um, so you can see that the intent to invest is is there and is growing. What I found really interesting in that is that that we'd seen this massive kind of almost 30% growth in the last 12 months, driven primarily by COVID, um, but that 90% of people said that they intend to spend either the same or more in the next 12 months. So I think um, I've kind of always talked about this, this thing called from shoes to sofas. And when primarily women, but not just women, we kind of go through our life and we start off identifying ourselves um, in a smaller sphere. So it might be what we wear and then it might be as we get a bit older um, what car we drive. And then we have these kind of milestones and we kind of expand our footprint of how we express ourselves. And that expansion is a one-way street. We don't bring it back. Once we've added things to it, we don't stop or do less. Um, and there are real milestone moments like, you know, when you move out of home or when you move out of a share house or when you move in with a partner or when you have a baby or something like that that are kind of universal milestones and you see this kind of interest in spending money on your home peak at those times. And um, what I think was really amazing about COVID is that it was a collective shoes to sofa moment that we've never had before. Everybody did it. And it's kind of like once you start doing that, you know, when, when it happens to you by yourself and say you're the one that's just moved in with your partner or you've just had a baby and other people in your sphere aren't in exactly the same position, it might hold you back a little bit because not everybody is doing it with you. But when everybody's doing the same thing at the same time, it, it's like a snowball effect. And that's basically what we've seen. And what I thought was really interesting is that um, this was evident when we, we went back and did some more research um, into the Great Australian Lifestyle and, and asked the same questions to see what the movement was. And a lot of the movement is actually in the millennials. So that kind of 25 to 40 age group had this massive love affair moment with their home and that's not going to change that's going to keep growing and they're all intending to um, cook at home more they're all saying that they've had a stronger emotional connection to their home than ever before and so I think all of the shows that we do are going to benefit from that increasing mindset even though it was already happening this is just um, just fast-tracked it and we were already talking about doing selling in the city prior to COVID. 
But I think that helped us develop it in a, a, a way that's slightly different to what we might have done before. We're probably going to have a lot more focus of people that are moving out of the city and taking that next step um, and, you know, just understanding that there's a lot more people interested in getting to the market um, for the first time and want to see how to get the best out of it. Um, I think the biggest problem for us with selling houses at the moment is there's not many houses that aren't selling. <laughs> so, you know, it, is, it has been a bit harder to get those stories about a house that's been on the market for a while. We've still found them, but um, that was one of our concerns because, you know, you can sell a toilet block right now and it'll be fine. You get double over the reserve or something. Yes, I did see on the weekend a house sold with no kitchen and bathroom for $4 million. So uh, that's that's quite interesting. Yes. Uh, an, an obstacle perhaps, yeah, the producers hadn't banked on prior to uh, the commencement of filming. Um, speaking of commencement, when when can we expect selling houses? Do you have a launch date yet or a rough we, time frame? We don't have a launch date, but traditionally it goes to where around about the kind of March, April time. So our audience know when to expect it and they'll be hanging out for it. I don't think we'll make them wait any longer. It's it's such a loved show that, um, yeah, the, we, we didn't get a series to go to air this, this year because of COVID because there's so much travel involved. We just couldn't um, get to it. But we did actually manage, because we were already in production for Love It or List It, which is another Australian program that we made, um, we make that with Beyond and um, they juggled it through the whole of COVID and we actually did get the series completed and so that will go to air um, probably towards the back half of this year, which will give us a bit more Australian home property to whet our appetite for a while. Excellent. And have you seen any differences or different approaches from uh, advertisers, sponsors, etc., when it comes to getting involved with these programs in the last six to 12 months? I'm not sure that there's necessarily vastly different approaches. I think there's um, definitely understanding the emotional value of getting really in, intertwined into a show that they know people love. Maybe a little bit more willingness to sign up earlier so that they know they get the, the you know the full benefit of being woven into the fabric of the story. Um, I think we have all been running on a shorter and shorter kind of time frame with advertising and that does limit the opportunities of getting that real editorial integration. Um, but I think, you know, we, we've had quite a few clients that have been on for a long time and um, they already understand the value of that but I feel like that understanding is probably a little bit broader than it was before. So in terms of bringing new entities to the to the fold, so to yes, speak. So in yeah. terms of bringing on board new advertisers, etc., yeah. it's a bit of an education process then in terms of making sure they understand the value of getting in early. Yeah, and I think I think they're definitely getting that. They can see that and um, I think all marketers are just getting more and more savvy and more and more multi-skilled. So they do have a much better understanding of what it takes to produce a TV show and, and a, a better understanding of exactly how they'll benefit from being in there from the beginning. And are there any either sectors or um, types of advertisers that you're in particular looking to get on board within the lifestyle division at the moment? Like do you have a, I suppose, a, a list of, you know, entities or industries that you think would really benefit from being involved? Um, look, I think probably one of the ones that we haven't really had a lot of involvement from that I think there's a great opportunity for is the finance sector is that there's so much competition and there's so many questions and there's 
so much kind of emotional security around people taking up finance for a first home or, or an upgrade of their home that um, I, I think that there's probably an opportunity there and we've just got to work with the right partner to make sure that it's done in the right way. Um, so that that's probably the opportunity that I'd, I'd say I'm looking for that I don't think we've we've really done perfectly to date. We've got a really strong um, production slate, so I think my big project is making sure that all the production rolls out the way that it, it is best to do. Um, I'm really interested in doing a bit more development in the food space for us because I think there's opportunity, and I'm also really looking at the wellness space because, um, you know, we saw it before in the research when we did it prior to COVID that, you know, whole wellbeing was on top of everybody's minds but the, when you go back to the research and you see what came through, you know, 12 months after COVID hit, you get this real sense of um, a growing awareness. When we first did it, um, you know, millennials are very, very, very self-assured and, and understand how important mental and physical health are, particularly mental and self-care. They don't need permission. They don't think that it's luxury. They know it's a necessity. Whereas, you know, it's almost opposite for boomers that feel that they have to justify self-care before they do it and it always feels a bit indulgent and luxurious for them and they'll often kind of justify it with a big health scare for either them or a family member that means they have to now take care of themselves. Um, but we saw a real shift in that with COVID and I think because it's so much in the, you know, public realm and where the conversation is out there, that's definitely... Um, that was definitely having an impact prior to COVID, but I think there's been such a growth in awareness of this is a priority um, that we need to be proactive about rather than reactive for. And so I think there's really some opportunities in there that would actually appeal to a pretty broad market. Interesting. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the Mumbrella cast today. It's been really fascinating and I look forward to seeing the uh, 14th season of Selling Houses when it makes it to the screens early next year. Thank you so much. It was very nice. Thank you. And that's it for this week. But before we go... The final entry deadline for Mumbrella's Publish Awards is looming. You only have until Friday, July 9 to throw your hat in the ring. This year, there are 29 awards categories up for grabs spanning digital, print, sales, journalism, marketing, and more. So whether you're a small or large publisher, B2B or B2C, there will be more than one category ideal for you to enter. Go to mumbrella.com.au forward slash publish awards for more info. We're done for the week. That is it. Callum, Xander, Liv, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.